This is Jocko Podcast number 64 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. In a country that most people would struggle to find on a map, in a compound that few possess the courage to enter, men from my previous life took the fight to our enemy. In that compound, they found men that pray five times a day for your destruction. Those praying men don't know me, they don't know you, and they don't know America. They don't understand our compassion, our freedoms, and our tolerance. I know it may seem as if some of those things are currently missing, but they remain at our core and always will. Our capacity for them is boundless and is only dwarfed by the hatred in those men hiding in that compound, the hatred they have for you. Those men don't care about your religious beliefs. They don't care about your political opinions. They don't care if you sit on the left or the right, liberal or conservative, pacifist or warrior. They don't care how much you believe in diversity, equality, or freedom of speech. They don't care. I'm sorry you have never smelled the breath of a man who wants to kill you. I'm sorry you've never felt the alarm bells ringing in your body, the combination of fear and adrenaline as you move towards the fight instead of running from it. I'm sorry you've never heard someone cry out for help or cried out for help yourself relying on the courage of others to bring you home. I'm sorry you've never tasted the salt from your own tears as you stand at flag-draped coffins burying men you were humbled to call your friends. I don't wish those experiences on you. But I do wish you had them. If you had them, it would change the way you act. It would change the way you value. It would change the way you appreciate. You would become quick to open your eyes and slow to open your mouth. Most will never understand the sacrifice required to keep evil men like those from that distant compound away from our doorstep but it would not hurt you to try and understand. It would not hurt you to take a moment to respect the sacrifices that others make on your behalf, whether they share your opinions or not. It would not hurt you to take a moment to think of the relentless drain on family, friends, and loved ones that are left behind, sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months, Sometimes for years, sometimes forever. 
ideas are not protected by words paper and ink may outline the foundation and principles of this nation but it is blood only blood that protects it in that dusty compound a man you have never met gave everything he had so that you have the freedom to think speak and act however you choose he went there for all of us whether you loved or hated what he stood for he went there to preserve the opportunity and privilege to believe to be and to become what we want this country every single person living inside of its borders and under the banner of its flag oh that man we owe that man everything we owe him the respect that his sacrifice deserves saying thank you is not enough we send our best and lose them in the fight against the worst evil this world has to offer if you want to respect and honor their sacrifice it needs to be more than words you have to live it take a minute and look around soak it in all of it the good the bad and the ugly you have the choice every day as to which category you want to be in in which direction you want to move you have that choice because the best among us the best we ever had to offer fought and bled and died for it don't ever forget that now those words were in a piece that was called a debt that cannot be repaid which was written by a fellow seal and a friend of mine named Andy Stumpf when he heard that we had lost another frogman chief Ryan Owens during a daring raid on an al-qaeda compound in Yemen and it was a very fitting tribute another fitting tribute yet another fitting tribute to yet another great warrior who sacrificed everything for us one of the hardest truths is is that I know we know that this will not be the last great warrior to fall
and those warriors still on the line close ranks to fill the void left by the fallen and they continue to march forward into the dark and into the dust looking for and hunting for evil and those warriors regardless of what they come up against they will not stop and this evening while that hunt continues and while evil lurks out there in the world I am lucky enough to have one of the good guys here with me the man that wrote those powerful words and that powerful tribute as I said a friend and a former SEAL teammate of mine Andy Stumpf Andy Stumpf welcome to the show brother thanks for having me man there was um, that was a that was an incredible piece man really was and uh, thank you for writing it I think uh, it got around and I hope more people get to hear it now and and spread it and share it about that you know another another brave warrior down yeah it uh, <clears throat> I, like we were going back and forth over text I think took off like wildfire I, I was eating breakfast with my sons and had received the news from a buddy before it had broken on uh, mainstream media. And it was just one of those moments where it, I couldn't get the thoughts out of my head, so I cracked open my laptop, literally took one stab at that, one pass, and just hit the post button and walked away, came back four or five hours later, and my phone was just exploding. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was cathartic for me to write it and I do hope that more people can understand the message and take just two seconds out of their day to realize what's happening all around them all around the world at any given time any given time it's happening yep the sacrifices are there and it's you know speaking of social media it's been a lot of people been requesting they've been asking <laughs> do you know Andy Stumpf and Andy Stumpf do you know Jocko so yes we do know each other that is confirmed and they've been asking you to come on the podcast so thanks for coming on man I know I know we haven't really seen a bunch of each other in the last few years been, I think it's been like five years that's that's ridiculous and actually. for all those people who've been asking you can stop now the answer is yes I know Jocko we've known each other for a while and here we are so stop we're good to go <laughs> Yeah, but uh, really appreciate you coming on. So, yeah. um, let's get into it, man. Let's talk about let's talk about you. Know, give us your basic background. You yeah. know, tell us about growing up in Santa Cruz. What's up, Santa Cruz? Uh, man, what a great place to grow up. I mean, Santa Cruz is amazing, with an asterisk, and that asterisk <laughs> is whether or not at some point in time in your life you leave Santa Cruz yeah. because it's a bubble. But for me, it was awesome. I have family roots there from not only my father, but my grandfather. They had one of the first construction companies there, built the high school that my father attended, uh, built a lot of the infrastructure, uh, and also had a lot of ties to like law enforcement and firefighters, which would help me out when I would get rides home, when I would get in trouble, mm -hmm. uh, you know, advantages that other people didn't have. But I mean, I consider my, I mean, my background is very uh, generic. I mean, right. I, 
played water polo and baseball in high school. I'd give myself a C as far as being an athlete, like very average junior lifeguards, so comfortable uh, in and around the ocean, which was a skill that obviously paid off uh, in training. You didn't surf? Did you surf in Santa Cruz? I did surf quite a bit, and I'm sure you've surfed up there. As you know, it's extremely territorial. Good waves. It's good waves, but like when you're 150 pounds, you know, yeah. and you're 17, 18 years old, I just really wasn't into, uh, you know, fighting for waves. Yeah. So I'd surf a little bit, a little longboard stuff down by cows, maybe steamers yeah. if it wasn't huge. <laughs> and it just played sports. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was super casual. Worked for my dad's construction company. Santa Cruz has a dichotomy too in it, in the fact that, especially when you were growing up, there was mad. Like, okay, there's that basically, I don't know if you want to call it the haves or the have-nots, but we're not talking about money. We're talking about like massive drug use, right? Still exists yeah. to this day. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, it's like an undercurrent that not a lot of people know about Santa Cruz. Most of the people who live in Santa Cruz don't work there. The money all comes from the Silicon Valley. They go over the right. Highway 17. I mean, the, the median cost of homes in Santa Cruz, I think, is near $800,000, which is crazy because the city was kind of built around UC Santa Cruz. I mean, it's right. a college. I mean, who right. can afford that stuff? But in the surfing scene, I mean, that's where a lot of the drug, from my understanding, that's where a lot of the drug stuff started, mm-hmm. and then it just pushed itself out. It still exists. It's really bad. Yeah, it can be. It can be a rough. It's you. You'd think Santa Cruz is nice beach town, but it yeah. can be a rough town. I mean, you make a wrong turn, yeah. you're going to be in trouble. But I mean, the same can be true here, of San Diego, or yeah, anywhere true, you may want to go. So, when did you hear about? When did you hear about the teams? And yeah. decide you're going to get it on. Yeah, you know. Uh, so I come from a military family. My grandfather was in the Navy. My father was in the Navy. He was a twin 50 cal gunner on the Mark ones in Vietnam. Dang. The first squadron of patrol boats with the jacuzzi jets, which he said had a failure rate of about 90%. That had to be fun. And of course they didn't fail at the time, but you'd want them to. Uh, like pulling away from the dock while you're Yeah, in. no, just in the middle of a firefight, you know, a complex ambush that you're trying to get out God. of. Uh, so you can, I mean, like, I don't think. I actually I know for a fact. My father. Did prob- your dad work with seals? That's yeah. That's, that's what oh, I was okay. getting to. That's how I heard about it. Um, my father probably didn't want me to join the military. Right. I mean, I I don't want my sons necessarily to. However, I would never stand in their way. Just like my father allowed me to pursue what I wanted to do. But I started working for him when I was eleven and learned some of the best lessons of my life with bricks in my hands because <laughs> he was a mason and I basically moved bricks for a long time. Uh, but it was hard work, and it paid off later in life. And I remember we were driving back from a job when I was 11, and he mentioned SEALs. And with no understanding of what they are, just his description of what they did, how they – he was it was like you know they were in the water. They would get them onto the boats. They'd drop them off. It was intriguing to me. So it led me to trying to search for as much information as I could find out about them. And in the early 90s, the intranet – was not what it was today. So, of course, I found the book that almost every team guy has read, The Men with Green Faces, all about Vietnam. But it's an awesome book. So I read that and then unfortunately stumbled across the Rogue Warrior series, which, as I was saying before we started, I made the mistake of thinking that it was a nonfiction work. (laughs) (laughs) And find out until a little bit later that that was incorrect. But I was hooked. And from that moment on, it was... Every piece of information that I could find, it's all I wanted to do. It was like a magnetizing force. Uh, I don't have the vocabulary to describe it. People who don't come from our world, it's very uncommon for them to hear that, but you know as well as I do, the SEAL teams is is full of people with the same narrative. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I've just always wanted to do this. It was a calling. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it, the idea was sparked f- from my dad 
And I was 17, still in high school, a junior in high school. And I went to the Navy recruiter and brought the Navy recruiter home because my parents had to sign for me. And I had my mom, who was an Army brat, and my dad, who was, like I said, served in Vietnam. And I'm sure that they were not extremely excited, but they both signed for me. So I enlisted actually when I was a junior in high school and then left just a few days after uh, high school graduation. That's so legit. Yeah, it was awesome. And then I look back now, I'm like, why did I do that? Why did I enlist a year early? All I did was give a recruiter. I filled their quota for yeah, the month. <laughs> I couldn't leave. It's like, yeah, you got to still got to wait till I turn 18 and graduate. But that, I mean, the recruiter was happy. But I mean, it, I, I never took the SATs. I had no plan B. It's what right. I knew I wanted to do. And I, I never even considered so what anything else. what year is else. that? I enlisted August 1st of 96. Okay. Awesome. Yep. And so then you show up at Bud's. Showed up for Buds January of ninety seven. Get some winter. Were you still eight, were you still seventeen? I was eighteen. Nice. Yeah, got some uh, got some winter class action on. <laughs> well, you're from Santa Cruz, so it was not, uh, not yeah, that big. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I never really <laughs> laid in the ocean for extended periods of time without a wetsuit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but you know what? Even the training was everything that I thought it was going to be. I mean, I was happy to be there, yeah. and it hurt every single day, and it was extremely hard. Um, but God, I'd pay money. I'd give you every penny I have right now to go back. Yeah. If I could turn back the clock right now, I would make exactly the same choices up until that point in my yeah. life. Yeah, maybe they would change a little bit later on, but until that point, we're still going down the same road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just I, I had somebody ask me that the other day. Some kid, I was talking to some school kids, and one of them said, "You know." What can I do to get ready for SEAL training? I was like, man, SEAL training is awesome. You get yeah. paid, you work out, you literally work out all day long. They feed you three, if not four meals a day of all you can eat. Just get after it. It's it's awesome, man. It's so fun. With aggressive A-type, motivated, yeah. largely personalities surrounding <laughs> you. It, it gets better as obviously the days and weeks go on in training. Some of the people who shouldn't be there are weeded out. But yeah. And then even the teams, it's like it's it, it can be everything that you want it to be. Yeah. So you show up. So you get done. You show up at the teams. You're a new guy. How was that new guy experience? Man. <clears throat> well, I don't know the statute of limitations on some of the things that were done to me, but uh, <laughs> I mean, again, but it was it was awesome. I yeah. was surrounded by my heroes. I didn't know yeah. anything about anything. Uh, I didn't realize that at the time. Uh, but. Because in mean, your head, because in our heads, we know everything well, about everything. I had been to Bud's and Airborne School at Fort Benning. I am the most highly polished soldier in the world. Yeah. And, and but, you just FYI, for those people that don't understand, when you get done with Bud's and Airborne School, you know you, nothing. You know nothing. Yeah. You, you know nothing. You know nothing tactical. You know nothing. And it's pretty ridiculous that, that it's got the people prestige. Call, yeah, people call Bud's a school. And I, it's again, you got to air quote that because you don't, you don't know how to be a – that's another one I get all the time. You don't, you're not a SEAL at the end of Bud's. I always tell people it stands for Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL with the emphasis on the B. Mm -hmm. It's basic. Yeah. You can run and do pull-ups and you look great with shorts on at the beach. <laughs> I mean – but you don't know anything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I checked in, uh, you know, pre 9-11. Although they are better now. I just, I have to say that. Of course. They're, they're, they're way better now. I was mm -hmm. talking to some guys that, um, recent graduates that are yeah. now in the pipeline. They're getting trained. And I told them, I said, you guys are getting trained infinitely better yeah. than what we got. Infinitely better. Now, it has to do with the time frame that you and I came in, yep. the 90s. 
there was no there was few very few Vietnam veterans left you'd milk what you could out of them but yeah. you weren't going to get like now every single guy that's teaching every single bloods instructor are all combat veterans that yeah. have experience so it's it's a different game now they've and stepped I think it up. we were taught infinitely better than the people before us I'm glad to see that that cycle repeats yeah. itself I mean it's just a matter of technology and understanding and uh, I mean they've changed the pipeline a little bit especially yeah. what happens after buds because yeah. I went to team five and Yep. We did our own Trident board, you know, yep, and we did our way. own trading. And then you could talk to the guys like down at Team Three. They're like, "Oh yeah, we didn't do any of that." Like, <laughs> well, that just means I'm better than you, obviously. <laughs> you no, know, but <laughs> yeah, there's no competitive nature in the teams <laughs> no. at all. Mm-mm. But I mean, it was. I mean, I looked at these guys who had been in SEALs for like five, six, seven, eight years, or there was like a Vietnam vet walking around. Like you're just, I just wanted to breathe the same air yeah. as those people and. I mean, it's a, you realize incredibly fast that you don't know anything. And you realize that because you get taped up for your mistakes. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're reinforced every time that you make a mistake. And it's just like, I couldn't do anything right for like years because I didn't know anything. The biggest, if we had been fighting an enemy, I would have been more of a danger to the people that I was with than the enemy that we were fighting. It just, yeah. I mean, I tell people it takes five to seven years to even understand what it really means to be a SEAL. And then probably at the 10-year mark, you're at the top of the bell curve as far as what you're going to be able to do operationally. But still, I mean, I was in heaven. I was in my – I wasn't even 21 yet, living in an apartment in Coronado, riding a bike to work. Richest guy in the world. Well, until I got paid. (laughs) Yeah, and then I would be the poorest guy two days after that. (laughs) It's it is like for most guys that come in out of high school because when you're in high school, you know, even if you're working at Wendy's, yeah, like I did, yeah. you're only making whatever four twenty five an hour, and that amounts to you know whatever you know you're getting like eighty bucks every two weeks. You you show up in the teams, and all of a sudden they're giving you real legit money. You're mm. they're filling your pocket up every two weeks. You are the richest <laughs> you are kid in the world. Not if you're a new guy, because you're paying yeah. for everything. You buy, a lot of <laughs> you buy, you, you buy some beers. Yeah. You buy some beers. I learned a lot of stuff in bars over beers. <laughs> Indeed. Learned a lot of, I mean, you listen to a lot of history. Uh, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn when you should keep your mouth shut, because it gets shut for you. I've been taped up in a bar, maybe. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> the, the, uh, the, uh, the hazing was pretty good in teams back then. Yes. Yeah. Reinforcement. Less than reinforcement. reinforcement. Yeah. So you, you did a couple <laughs> deployments. Couple deployments. Two pre nine eleven deployments. Uh, and you know, again, the life as a new guy is amazing. Like, here's a rifle. It's yours. And then my first uh, department I worked in, I was a secondary comm guy. So I think I had like a PRC seventy seven. <laughs> <laughs> Like rotary, you know, rotary dials and whip antenna. I hadn't even been to comm school, but it's right. like, this is my stuff. And I got, remember going, getting issued my first set of gear that I look back at now and it's like, I couldn't sell it if I wanted to. It was so yeah. antiquated, but I was so happy to be where I was. Yeah. And we, you know, we'd train for 18 months and we'd deploy for six. But my first deployment was to Japan, to the Kadena Air Force Base. <laughs> And we experimented with how much we could drink and how much we could work out. Like, which ratio is best? 80-20? 70-30? <laughs> and we'd go train our partner forces. But, I mean, we just – I mean, we lived life hard. Yeah. It was exactly the brotherhood that I thought it was be. I was surrounded by my best friends. We all had the same drive. You could have told us to go build sandcastles. We would have had the best sandcastles in the world because we just go and go and go and go until we get it right. Surrounded by like-minded, motivated people. Come back, did another 18-month workup. as like a 
kind of new guy. One platoon right. wonder, one if you will. One wonder. If you will. Again, you know about 20%, but you think you know about 80. The ratio is just askew. Yeah. Uh, went through the whole workup again and then uh, deployed to Guam for six months. And then at the same time, we'd go to Australia for a bit. We'd train with uh, the partner forces there. We'd go to the Thailands. We'd go to Philippines. And then we'd go back and we'd just train and talk about how awesome we were going to be when the big mesh. Remember the Golden Connex yeah, box? Yeah. Big Mish and the Golden the Connex. Mish. Leif and I have talked about that on here. Was, you know, back in the day, pre, especially pre 9-11, we were all preparing for the one big mission that was going to go down, the big Mish. Yeah. And you know how and, and what was interesting is because we didn't have any combat experience, at least from my perspective, we trained freaking hard because yep. we thought like it was going to be even harder than anything we could imagine. We don't know how hard it's going to be, so we're just going to be like it's not sandcastles because yep. we would have prepared for that hard too. But it's real. This is what we're prepared for. So we trained as hard as we possibly could in every arena. In, in every arena yeah. to be ready for whatever was going to come, which we had no idea. I, I don't know if I've talked about this before, but we finally got my first deployment. My first deployment deployed to Guam. Yeah, and I'm ready for the big mesh, bro. Totally, I'm I'm ready. <laughs> it's going down from Guam. We get there. <laughs> we get there and. We have, you know, we get issued beepers. So you know it's real now because you're getting issued beepers. Because this back in the day, no one had beepers back then unless you, unless some shit was going to go down. So they give us the beepers and we're like ready to rock and roll. And finally, actually, I was surfing and I come in and someone's waving, one of my buddies waving him in the beach like, hey, I run up. What's going on? Hey, we got a page. So we get the page. We, we got the page. We know she, we get the nine one one page. Alert. Oh dang, Bro, it's on. Get, but we, you know, get, get haul ass to base. We get there. We get in. The LPO is sitting there. You know, I, I look at his face and I go, "This doesn't look. This doesn't look like the kind of face I anticipated seeing right now." And I've been in Guam. This is my first deployment. I'm two days into Guam, so. I think, man, this is exactly like what you're saying. Yeah, the blue what, one. What's up. it going to be like? Of course, man. I just got on deployment. It's going down. So no. The kidding. president knows that I'm on deployment. He's ready. Yeah, we're going to action that target. So what I failed to mention was that we were like our second or third day in Guam. The first day in Guam that we were there, we went and sighted in our weapons. So we got a recall, emergency recall, nine one one. Go back into base. Guess what? We didn't do. We didn't clean up our brass. <laughs> So I'm not kidding. We went and cleaned up our brass. They they made it. They recalled us. Emergency recall to go clean up our brass on the range. After that, the the beers got cracked open and it went sideways real quick for the rest of that deployment. But yeah. isn't it amazing what used to constitute an emergency? <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, that was a rough one. Oh man. So you end up. So those are your couple uh, pre 9 11. Where were you when September 11th happened? Uh, I was uh, stationed at uh, Team 5 still, and I was living in the Archstone Apartments right by the Ikea in Mission <laughs> Valley. Watched the second one go in live. Dang. Yeah, I remember it. I uh, was living with a buddy and uh, my wife. We'd been married for six months and watched the second one go in live. And then like, you knew immediately. Did you know what did you think? Were you thinking on the first one? Because I wasn't. The first one, I was I like, I didn't Dang. see the first one going live. I turned it on just in time to see the second one. I, but I think it caught most people. Like, the first one, they're like, oh, well, that pilot's probably in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> going to be a lawsuit on that one. And then yeah. the second one, there was no doubt, no doubt whatsoever. And I didn't know, I mean, looking back, I didn't have 
the mental capacity to understand the difference that it would have in my life. But I knew that something was going to be different. I mean, I think I realized that we were passing from the conceptual phase to the practical phase of what we had trained to do for a really long period of time. You know who did know that? So the de- the officer, de- so I was going to college at the time, and I called the officer detailer who was a friend of mine who I knew who I'd worked for, who was an outstanding guy, and I called him up and I was like, hey, sir, I'm in college, get me out of college, I'll finish online, I'll do something, <laughs> just get me out of here, send me to a team immediately, please, Yeah, please. And he, and he says to me, Jocko, don't worry, this war is gonna last a long, long time. And, and of course I didn't believe him, yeah. but damn was he right. He, he was, but I mean, I can only imagine being in your shoes, I would have been like, I don't really care, this is what my calling in life is to be. I don't. I don't care if I'm in line to get the Nobel Prize for something. Like we'll just put that on the shelf yeah. and I'll come back and get it. Nobel what? Yeah, no, like there's a war going on. Yeah, and so you get done with that, and then uh, shortly thereafter, you ship out to the East Coast, right? Yep, go out to the East Coast and uh, did the vast majority of my combat deployments out there. Uh, and wow, I mean, what an eye-opening experience. You know, it from like I said, going from conceptual shooting at paper targets and, and training hard and realistic to to being on a two way range for the first time. I mean, uh, the the first target I ever was on, uh, I think my helicopter had twenty seven rounds in it, and the door gunner got shot in the face right in front of me, and I'm in mop level four. Yeah, for those of you that don't know that, <laughs> what that is, that's the that's the chemical, biological, and radi- radiological suit yeah. protection that you wear. The and highest level, level. Level four is you're wearing your mask. You're yes. wearing everything. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a horrible, uncomfortable, miserable thing to do. And We had a four-hour 47 flight <laughs> on the way to the objective, and 30 minutes out, we got all of our stuff on to include our gas masks and the blowers. The, I was going to say, if you had the blowers, that does make it a lot nicer. Well. Unless you put your weapon strap over the hose. (laughs) 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 Oh, I could go on for days about mistakes I've made in my life. Uh, So, yeah, I would skip breathing, and occasionally the glass would touch my eyeball because I couldn't breathe. But, I mean, this this is my first real target ever, and it's uh, we're hitting the number one chem bio target in Iraq uh, right after the war kicked off. And I was on the third 47 that came in, and they blew the power grid. Uh, but an A-10 strike uh, before we landed. And then they landed the helicopters in between the fireball and the city. So we were backlit. So each subsequent helicopter that came in uh, took more rounds. And by the time ours came in, it started taking rounds at about a minute out. I didn't even know what they were. I'm just sitting there looking through straws, you know, through my Mm. gas mask, through my night vision goggles, suffocating myself because my weapon strap is over the hose. It's supposed to be giving me the air. Uh, And... You know, there was some sparks. Nobody nobody heard on the bird. Not a single one of our guys shot. And then right before we touched down, the door gunner just falls over. And then, you know, the top of his head kind of came off and tied my, you know, tied my jacket around his head and it just took off. And away we went on our first combat operation. But the whole thing was just surreal. And that that leap, I didn't realize how surreal it was till the next morning when I woke up and I was like, Phew. Man, I hope this is survivable. Because <laughs> that was just one of many in the target deck. And it continued for months and then years and, you know, two decades and now, now. decades. Yeah. And it was, and it took me a little bit of time to get up and running to be, 
to be comfortable in that environment, but I, I developed a level of comfort in that environment. And if I'm being totally honest, I mean, I loved it. I loved it. It was, I mean, I, I understand that it's high consequence and that it's high risk and that there's, there's matters of life and death and decisions that are being made, but that's where I want to be. I mean, it, that I was like, yes, this is what I came to do, to fight for the values that I believe in and to fight for people who can't fight for themselves. And uh, yeah, it was awesome. Loved it. It's interesting how you talk about that um, transition from like, from training, which is yeah. what we all lived. There's very few people that, this is another thing that it's hard for people to understand about, especially about the early days of the SEAL, well, for us, the early days of the SEAL teams is, there was so few people that actually had combat experience. Yep. And that went all the way up to the leadership. A lot of leadership had no combat experience. And so for us, all of a sudden, in a very quick learning curve, you, you know, you spend two weeks on deployment, you had more combat experience than and you know than anybody else in the SEAL teams at that time. You know, other yeah. than the guys that were deployed right before you. But you had a, that's how quick the learning curve was. And, and things man, were changing. I mean, look at what we trained. I mean, we were doing OTB and exhaustion dragger dives, and I'm doing river and stream crossing and island. Bro, I'm not kidding. Before my first deployment to Iraq, I took my SEAL platoon. We went on board of an amphibious landing ship in San Diego and went and no kidding did lead line and slate beach reconnaissance at Camp Pendleton. That was that was less than it might have been a month and a half before deploying to Iraq <laughs> to do operations. Yeah. That's how that's 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 the lag time in the big bureaucratic machine of the military. Hey, you know we got this big uh, fleet exercise. You guys can go participate in one of one of our. One of my guys in that platoon, I come down and go, hey, break out your lead line and state. So, so again, for those of you that don't know, there's the a very prehistoric type operation that was. It's an excellent descriptor. Yeah. <laughs> it's war, it came from World War II. It came after the Battle of Tarawa. At the Battle of Tarawa, the Marines went in, and as they went into the beaches in their landing craft, they hit reef, and the, the they opened the gates of the of the. Uh, landing craft the Marines got out yeah. and unfortunately the reef ended and so these guys these Marines went out and they went into you know 10 12 15 feet of water instead of two feet of water mm. and many many Marines were in drowned. heavy gear that was not buoyant it was not designed for swimming it yeah. was it was meant for beach landing not yeah, yeah. for a swim and anyways that was kind of the one of the precursors to the UDTs and and what so what our our predecessors used to do was go in with a lead line, which is a piece of string with a lead on the bottom of it, and it's got little uh, marks on it called buntings, little marks on it that tell you how deep it is, and you go in as a big team, and you drop these lead lines, and you figure out how deep, and, you, and your slate is a piece of plexiglass that's been sanded down, and you write with a pencil on it how deep it was in this particular location. It's like trying to do calculus with an abacus, basically. <laughs> so, so we are... You know, like l less than two months from deploying to Iraq for the first time, none of us had ever been in combat. For n not one single person, zero, not one single person in my SEAL platoon had ever been in combat before, including our task unit commander, no one. And so we say, oh, you know what we need to do right now is we're going to do a, a hydrographic reconnaissance. That's what it's called with lead line and slate. But one, one of the guys might be like, what, you, what are you doing? What are you talking about? And I go, Bro, we're just gonna do it. And it was like, you've gotta be kidding me, what is wrong with us? But yeah. so that learning curve was fast, but then, it, I, but I also, to, to kind of emphasize what you're saying, and I look at it, when, when you said, you know, your first like platoon, you know like 20%, and then 
your second platoon, you know, for me, because I have four kids, it's very similar to what you learn with kids. Yes. Your first kid, you're like, oh, wait, what? Yep. Ah, you, you don't know how to do anything. Everything is hard. You don't, you're worried about everything. Your second kid, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm pretty pretty much going to do it. Your third kid, you're like, okay, you know, I, I I think we're comfortable. Your fourth kid, you're like, I got this, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Fourth I kid, you're like, hey, first kid, go take care of your sibling. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> which is which is really which is really exactly what you do in the teams. And yep. You're like, hey, you know, you know, one cruise wonder, go show that new guy what's up because yep. you don't have to do it anymore, and, and you want them to learn the experience. Mm. But that's the same thing with the combat operations that you do, and and over you know a period of a couple weeks, all of a sudden you go from being, you know, I'll, t- I'll give you another good example. From my perspective, my first deployment to Iraq, when every operation we would go on, like the first, like let's call it five or seven operations that I did, every piece of gear that I had, I changed the batteries, changed the battery in my nods, changed the battery in my lasers, changed the battery in my flashlight, changed every single bit. I need a brand new battery in every one of these pieces of gear. Well, my, I was doing it because that's that's when we talked about the big mish, that's what we would think. You know what, I gotta have this 100%. Yep. We realized after a week, if everyone does that, we're not going to have any batteries left in another two weeks. And <laughs> yep. so we all realize, you know what? You're going to have to wear, use that battery and keep track of how long you're using it for because you don't want it to fail. But you're going to get, you know, 12 or 15 or 25 uses out of this thing. But that's the kind of lessons that we learned. And that's the kind of comfort level you got. Like, okay, if my nods fail, I'll stop. I'll put a new battery in my nods and we'll move on. Mm. So those are the kind of things that you learn uh in that steep learning curve that all of us, our whole generation yeah. went through that real quick. And you only learn that with time in the saddle like it takes experience to understand like okay i can use this lithium battery that probably costs nine (laughs) dollars and i didn't turn it on the whole time and i'm gonna huck it you know i think i can use it again i mean but i mean everything changed the tactics changed the gear changed the way we trained changed it was amazing what happened post 9 11 all the stuff we thought was going to be crazy effective because it worked in vietnam guess what doesn't work in the desert let me ask you this when you say that you only learn it in the saddle, when you were, when you went through training, when I was when I was running training, mm-hmm. do, you were able to convey a lot of that information to those guys, though. I tried. I think I think you were, and maybe you couldn't give them every single little tiny thing. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, there was no one to teach us that stuff. Yes. In. For me, it was in 2003. There was no one to say, hey, you don't need to change your battery on every operation. You're going to need those batteries. You need to make them last. So we did get we did get some fundamental knowledge back from for sure from those early times. And then you still got to add that experience, though. The people I mean, like you could you, you could read a book. And then go do it for real, and it, you need the combination of the two to have that confidence, and then you can impart it on somebody else. And you know, history just like like you said, the Vietnam guys, like they were just timed out. We didn't have access to that. Yeah. And I, mean, I look at the pre nine eleven training that we did. <laughs> it was awesome, but don't get me wrong, I loved it. But man, it doesn't work in Baghdad. Yeah, you yeah. know. And then the, we had a tactical shift again in probably two thousand six, two thousand and seven. You know, it's it's just it's. That, I think, is what separates our community from a lot of other ones. Like, we're malleable. Mm-hmm. Like, we have leadership that's like, listen, this isn't working in real time. We need to create a solution for it right now, and we're willing to do that. We're, yeah. We have just a little bit more control of the wheel. And yeah, I, well, part of the reason is because we had no doctrine. Yeah. Whereas the other service branches, many of them, have this beautiful, yep. really well written doctrine on this is how you do this type of operation and we didn't have that so guess what for us to say you know what that didn't work yesterday we're going to change it today they didn't have that capability they were like hey this is the way we do it yeah and we never really had this is the way we do it i mean think about before trade it 
I was at Team 5, right? So we would go to Alaska and do cold weather training. And the Team 3 guys were off driving DPVs. <laughs> I mean, there wasn't even talking in between the teams. Yeah. So there was so much skill set. And, of course, I mean, if you were at Team 3, I wasn't telling you shit. <laughs> you know, I'd give you the wrong information because <laughs> you know, we're competing with ourselves. But – yeah, that like you said, no doctrine, and then finally we had you know the trade at you know East Coast and West Coast, and you know sharing information and coming together and lessons learned and all that stuff that I think largely professionalized the force uh, from a paperwork perspective, but has impact on the battlefield as well too. It's not sexy and it's not fun, but it keeps people alive. No, there's there's no doubt about that. The amount of interoperability we would do yep. as the different training departments was was awesome. Yep. was awesome and bouncing lessons learned and the feedback loop with that we got going was definitely far superior to anything than like you said when we had the teams going oh all God. different <laughs> areas and not talking to each other I mean I got issued overwhites at team five we they wouldn't issue us tan BDUs because yeah. we were a Southwest Asia platoon and I'd look at the guys wearing the chocolate chips I'm like, God, I want to get a pair of those. <laughs> I'll trade you for these woodland cameras <laughs> <laughs> it's just a different world but I'm actually extremely grateful that I got to see both sides of the coin yeah. because if you never got to see that evolution, uh, you're missing a huge piece of who we are as a community. And also, I, I believe it would be easier that you would that we could let it slip back yeah. in that direction if we don't, like we said, capture those lessons and, yeah. and be able to pass them on. So how, how many then you got out to the East Coast, how many deployments did you do out there? Uh, I bounced back and forth from Iraq to Afghanistan uh, for basically four years straight. It'll be everything between three to four months. They were shorter in mm -hmm. duration. Mm -hmm. uh, so I ended up in my career. I've been to Iraq three times and Afghanistan five. And at one point there, you you kind of got a little setback. Yeah. Uh, I equated to going to Vegas, uh, and you can play craps for a really long time, and you can be on a great heater. Uh, and then a seven is going to come up and bite you. And hopefully you don't have a lot of chips uh, on the table. Um, yeah, I got uh, I got shot from about 15 feet away by a guy in a window that I didn't see. And I was staring at that window for 10 minutes before I, I was sitting on a ladder looking into a courtyard where they were trying to determine uh, which building was the one that we were actually going to make entry on. And they determined that the building that I was looking at was the one we were going to make entry into. I'm actually going to back it up a little bit. So we walked by this building originally. The lights were off because I was walking point at the time. So we went down an alley. Uh, you know, we're not always the best ninjas. We made a little bit of noise. So a guy comes out of a house. We pursued him into the house and uh, made additional noise while we were doing that, uh, securing that to make sure that uh, maybe it wasn't the guy. We weren't exactly positive of the location. So maybe that could have been the guy. So it wasn't, and we backtracked and went back down that alley. And uh, the guys who were doing the – they were fixing the target, uh, trying to determine which building it was going to be. They needed some time, so I threw a ladder up on a wall because I'm not a huge fan of not being able to see over things. Climbed up on the ladder and was just looking at the outside of a building. And the lights were on this time, which defeats a lot of the uh, technological advantage that I have. So I was kind of just looking underneath my nods. And I could see plainly into the window. I never saw a shadow. I never saw a curtain move. I never saw anything. Uh, and they finally gave me the go-ahead, hopped off the ladder. And I remember being in the corner of the courtyard by myself for a little bit before uh, two other guys came over with me. And I almost approached the door on my own uh, because I had before. I, I, and it was dark and I had the shadows. And it was kind of like an American house where there's – uh, it was like an L 
the long end of the L being the garage, and then there's the path that goes to the front door, mm-hmm. and then it breaks off, and then there's that window right there. That was mm-hmm. the window I was looking at. And I was just going to go to the corner to set security for the breach, and I almost left the shadows. It's like, you know what? Not today. So I waited for two more guys to come up. And right at that corner that I was going to post myself up on, there was a window. And I wasn't going to turn my back on the window without taking at least a quick peek in it. And as soon as I turned my head to look in that window, I heard a crack. And uh, the round hit me high up on the hip and spun me. And, and then this is the only time I've ever felt it in my life, the true sensation of time slowing down. It really – it was it was almost like the movies. It's probably the only thing I can say was ever like the movies. But it slowed down and spun me towards him. And when it hit, I pushed off a little bit with my right foot, I think just instinctually, kind of kind of pushed me down. And there was a vehicle in the driveway. And I ended up stuck underneath the vehicle. I had a shotgun on my right-hand side, and the bungee cord got stuck on the undercarriage. I'm laying on top of my gun, can't get it, staring at full auto fire from like 15 feet away out of a window. A guy's just up on his knees, just hosing. And uh, probably three seconds occurred or expired and I mean obviously all hell broke loose from people on our side uh, engaging the window they made entry from the other side ended up having I think it was eight American servicemen get wounded on that target alone Mm -hmm. Uh, some of it was uh, our guys were too close to a breach I mean a lot of it was it was some fog of war stuff from a unit that you wouldn't associate necessarily with the fog of war but it you know it happens I um I associate the fog of war with all units, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it, yeah, it, some yeah. of them would, it surprises you at some levels yeah. more than others. And it was, you know, they were trying; they wanted to get internal. They w- get the breach on the door, get the breach on the door. So we put a C six strip charge up, which is a very large explosive charge that runs the length of the door. We put it on the hinge side, and when they set it off, there was a unit that had entered on the other side of the building mm-hmm. without telling anybody, standing about three feet from Oof. it. So there were some people who were shot on the inside. There were some people who were shot on the outside. And then there were some people who were hurt from the explosion. So they had little birds coming in, grabbing people. Uh, I ended up getting thrown in the back of a Bradley Mm -hmm. (laughs) with a guy who jabbed me with a 14-gauge needle and hadn't prepped the bag. So he pulled it back out. And I told him at that point, you're done with any medical treatment (laughs) at this point. I'll handle my own stuff from here on out. (laughs) Like an army medic, he was just shaking. I'm like, you're good. I'm going to live, I think. So just – Take it easy. Take it easy. But, uh, I mean, I didn't do anything differently that night that I hadn't done before hundreds of times. Uh, you know, I just – I was on the wrong side of the bullet. And it it uh, it actually really rocked my confidence. It was – I was young. I was in my mid-20s where I wanted to be operating at the level that I wanted to be operating at. And – I mean, I couldn't walk for almost a year. I had uh, hemiplegia, like paralysis of one side of my leg. I had drop foot for a year. Is that because it obviously hit nerves then? It, they don't know if it – They, I mean, they don't know. It either hit the sciatic nerve as it went through or the shock wave short-circuited it. Either way, the result was the same. It fried it all the way down to uh, my ankle. So when I was in the back – when I got to the hospital in the green zone, my biggest complaint was that my ankle felt like it was snapped in half. Uh, and – like I still have never had a surgery, never broken a bone. Everything is still inside of my pelvis. They just wrapped the wound with ACE wrap and drug me out of the compound. I mean that's literally it. And then they went back to business. But uh, I thought that – I was like my ankle has got to be destroyed somehow. So they cut my boot off like very gingerly and they're looking at it and they're like your ankle's totally fine. But it, that was by far the worst part of it was the – 
the neuropathic issues for like a year and a half, almost two years. It felt like I had dipped my leg in gasoline and just lit it on fire 24-7. And so the Navy, I mean, I had like 14, 15 pill bottles. Uh, I mean, I was taking two, three, four Ambien, staying awake. Of course, the only way to up that game is to combine it with Captain Morgan, which I did in a variety of uh, dosages. Uh, so I would sleep, but wake up exhausted. I mean, it was, it was rough. It rocked me as a person and as, uh, as a seal. Uh, I didn't know if I was ever come back from it. Where were you stationed at that time? Were you still uh, out on the East coast or did you go to the East coast? I went to buds, uh, as a, basically a break to rehab myself. Uh, I mean like, so even still today, I can't feel my left leg from the kneecap down. I roll my ankle all the time. I'm just used to. I'm used to it. I know you, you somehow compensate for yeah, it the best I, you can. I, yeah, I mean, I'm very, I don't do any like lateral stuff because if I catch my left foot to the outside, that that's the role that I can't stop is the one at the outside. So, I mean, I still train as hard, if not harder, than I used to. I'm just super cautious with what it is that I do, and I tailor it all towards the the stuff that I do now. But yeah, you want to talk about you know you watch all these movies where. You know, guys are just getting drilled and they're running at it. And like, oh, I'm going to be the biggest warrior ever. And like, I was flat on my back. I mean, I was freaking done training. There's nothing I could do. Pinned under a car, uh, needed a buddy of mine to come over and pull me around in the middle of a firefight to get me out of out of, out of harm's way. I mean, I got super lucky. The, uh, the belt I was wearing that night has the second round that the guy shot at me. It burned the belt for like two inches. And then the copper jacket is still in the, uh, the belt itself. That's how close I got to getting hit even higher up in the hip. Like the pelvis, I, I don't think I would have survived that one if that would have hit me. Because it was an AK from like three times the distance from me to you right now. Yeah. It was spicy. <laughs> <laughs> so so when you, they're just, I mean, I'm not trying to say anything super negative about the care that you got. But they're like, yep. okay, take this pill, take this pill, take this pill, take the ear and pain, was, take this pill. It was early. So I was, um, I got home about two days after it happened. They flew me. They medevaced me to launch stool. I decided I didn't want to stay there, so I checked myself out and got a Delta ticket and flew into New York. I uh, got picked up by another plane, and my wife met me at the stairs of the aircraft at, in Oceana, the Naval Air Station there, with my son in a stroller, and she was pregnant with our second child. And about a week after that, my arresting heart rate was sitting at like 150. I was sweating profusely in a ton of pain and they take me to the hospital and I remember talking to like this I think I was an E5 at the time so I was talking to this little punk E2 corpsman who was checking me in and he was like you know what's the nature of your injury and I'm like you know gunshot wound to the hip and I kid you not he's he's like writing this stuff down he stops and he looks at me and he goes self-inflicted and my wife's sitting there looking at this she's just like what's what's going on like she has very little understanding of the military medical system i sat in the waiting room while they took people in with the sniffles and the flu for four hours before they took me in and my wife finally just started losing her mind on them and like you know they it was a training hospital as most military hospitals are they had never seen a gunshot wound because it was relatively early uh, in the war, you know, given where we were at that time, and they wanted to come have all the doctors, all the residents come in. They're like, hey, can they come in and check out the wound? Like, we've never seen a gunshot wound. Hmm. I'm like, sure, if you bring a, a pint of morphine with you and juice me up first, I don't care what you do. Like, I just couldn't sleep. I was in so much pain. Uh, the treatment that I got from the military, 
was not awesome. Um, it it was frustrating at the time, but so I also, this is this is just to make sure this is 05, right? 05, yeah, early 05. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't awesome. They weren't used to seeing a lot of that stuff. Uh, yeah, I got pills and I got sent home and kind of largely left to my own devices, which was not a smart call at the time. Um, I mean, I, I, in my career, I felt like I was a race car in fifth gear going around turn four, and then somebody dumped the tranny into reverse, and there was just pieces everywhere. And I had to kind of put it back together myself. And it sucked at the time. Uh, my wife still, I mean, she, she's pissed about it, the, the treatment that I got. But, I mean, I, the military did what they were doing at that time. You know, yeah. I, I don't hold them against it at, or hold it against them at all. Uh, but it sucked for yeah. sure. And I, I do know we've made vast improvements Huge. since then. Huge you were one of the guys that yeah. the reason why there's been so many improvements because, you know, guys were coming back and getting the kind of treatment that they would definitely deserve better. Ugh. You know, one of the worst things about the whole thing was actually the flight out of Balad and a C-141 full of stretchers of people that were wounded far worse than I was. Just the noises that were being made on that flight from Balad to mm. Landstuhl. Uh, I was very fortunate. I had a doc who was assigned to me. And I was just like, hey, knock me out. Right. I, like, I don't want to hear this anymore. And I had the guy just basically just juice me up until I fell asleep for the whole flight. But what an experience that you'll never forget. Just a tube full of bleeding Americans, you know on their way back to try to put their lives back together. Mm -hmm. People missing, I mean, I was right next to a guy who was standing in a turret of a Humvee when a suicide bomber clacked himself off and every inch of his body from belt line up was just completely tattered. I mean, uh, another guy who had his legs blown off. I mean, like, it, I'm sitting there, I'm like, I'm like, okay, I thought I was injured. Uh, you guys, you guys are way worse off than I am. It was a very sobering experience. Mm -hmm. How did you, so you go, you go kind of pretty far down the road of, uh, oh, of yeah. booze and pills. Mm. I mean, okay. I can so, give you some good recipes if you're interested. I'm Three not. blues, a red, <laughs> two bottles of Captain Morgan. <laughs> How did you? Okay, we'll we'll take it for granted that you went pretty far down that yeah. road, being that you know you've got the the team guy personality of, okay, I can't do this, so I'm gonna I can't do this to the I extreme, have, so I'm gonna do something else to the extreme. I have two speeds. I have go and stop. <laughs> How did you figure out? Okay, you know what. What what was the slap in the face that made you say, you know, this, this is not where I want to be? I was in the car with my wife. So one of the pills that they gave me was Neurotin, which is a anti-seizure medicine for children, but it has a secondary or tertiary side effect, side effect of uh, neuropathic pain control. It was an attempt to try to get that burning feeling to stop in my leg. And uh, I kept signing waivers for the dosages because they were we were off the charts like we were making medical history with the dosages that I was on uh, and another side effect of it is central nervous system suppression and I remembered going by the gasoline or going by the gasoline going by the gas station and looking at the sign for the prices of the gasoline and my wife asked me a very rudimentary mathematical problem and I couldn't I couldn't figure it out uh, and I'm certainly not the smartest guy in the world, but like I should be able to add two plus two and, you know, maybe multiply that out a little bit. And I, I couldn't do it. And I recognize that in and of myself. Uh, so that night I stopped drinking and basically started weaning myself off of the Neurotin because you can't stop it cold turkey because if you do, uh, your propensity for seizures goes through the roof. So it, you ha you got to graduate yourself out of it. So it took me like six to eight months to get myself off of the Neurotin, <laughs> off all the pills. 
uh, and I just started working out like a maniac, and that's how I got myself. I did it. I did it all on my own. I didn't get on any protocol from the Navy, but I remember that moment where I just couldn't answer that question. I was like, okay, time to time to shift course. And you know, a lot of people always, a lot of people ask about, um, you know, when you're injured, what they ask me, you're, you're injured, what do you do? And I always say, hey, I, I do what I can do. If I got a yep. blown out knee, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna do one legged squats, the other leg, I'm gonna do pull-ups. Was that your your attitude? It was like, okay, 100%. what can I do? You know, that's, that's how I found uh, CrossFit was through uh, getting shot. That's what I used to, and again, I, I could care less. People get very uh, excited about the term CrossFit, functional training, whatever you want to call it. To me, it was really new at that time. Like I was on the bodybuilder routine, if, you know, chest and yeah. tries and back and buys. And the 90s team guy routine. Totally. Yeah. Or yeah. otherwise known as the echo routine. Yeah. routine. <laughs> or you run on Wednesdays. Uh, but yeah, so like, and I had never done squats before. So I literally held on to a pole and lowered myself down yeah. into a squat and I picked myself up and I just, I just changed stuff so I could do it, and uh, I remember the first night of sleep that I had that was really good, and my wife could probably point to it on a calendar because I came back from the gym. Like, I had no responsibilities at work because my, my squadron was still deployed. So, I mean, I literally was like, hey, come in on Thursdays, and we'll give you some E-STEM on your leg. Right. That was that was the therapy. So I went into the gym, and I just crushed myself, came home like covered in sweat and just passed out slept good and just continued that routine on and you know they were saying it would take me a couple of years if ever to get back on uh full active duty because they didn't know i mean because with nerves they're like yeah you reach the end of the medical practice right. when you start talking about nerves i've never had i mean the doctors with probably a decade of medical experience is saying to me oh, i don't know yep. i'm like hey doc I, I don't have an md and i can tell you that i don't know could i get a better <laughs> answer out of you than that like come on man uh but yeah, I mean, I, I worked myself back. I wasn't done. I didn't want to be done. And I worked myself back to a point where I felt confident again that I could deploy. And I was still continuing. So I left and went to Bud's in 2006 as an instructor, used that time to rehab myself. And then um, by the time I got to Team 3, it was yeah, about four four or five years after that injury where I was going through training when you were the OIC of trade at. And, and also you became an officer at that point when you were going to Bud's. I did. I did. I um I didn't have a it's not that I didn't have a choice. It was the best choice that I had at that time. So when I got shot, I was on my LPO tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for people who don't understand the military, it is a mandatory go, no go wicket for advancement. And they counted it as me not successfully completing it. <laughs> so to advance, so I was an E6 uh, at the time, and I was trying to walk the I'm ladder. I'm sorry for laughing. For yeah. those of you that think I'm an evil bastard because <laughs> right. I'm laughing, I'm not laughing because I'm laughing at the old, the, just the, the, the ridiculousness yeah. of the system. So if you want to march your way from E1 to E9, you have to hit these mandatory career wickets, and the jump between E6 to E7 for the enlisted guys is the large jump from middle management to the C-suite of the enlisted realm. They, they judge you only by your service record unless you have these mandatory wickets you're, you're getting swept off the table. And so I submitted my chief package twice God. with a good, uh, awesome evaluations. I mean, I was doing some some awesome stuff in my career. I had good awards, uh, good recommendations, good evals from everybody. And two years in a row, they're like, nope. And so finally I started calling people who probably shouldn't have told me the answer. I'm like, hey, what's going on there? And they're like, oh, you, you know, your LPO tour is getting counted against you. <laughs> And I didn't, and yeah, and I and that I didn't want to be done with being in the military, and I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, how, what can I do here? 
if I want to continue on and I want to have impact. So I decided I needed to maneuver. So I researched uh, officer programs and stumbled across the limited duty officer program, which is traditionally for E7, E8s, and E9s. Uh, and there had never been an E6 candidate picked up. And so I threw my package in the next year that it came up and was actually selected first out of the whole stable of people that were selected that year ahead of like five or six other chiefs uh, who ended up getting picked up for LDO. But for me, it was I'm looking at I'm like, I want to stay in and I want to have an impact. This is the only way that I can do it. So that's why I submitted my, my officer package. It was never any burning desire of mine from like years before that. It was just – that I, I need to do something to keep moving and that was my that was my route to do it did you when you were so you get wounded right and obviously you could have said at that point hey you know what i'm done yep. you know when you look at the various reasons that a person could choose from why you said like you know what i'm not done because friends that you know other guys that we both know that i've talked to they have you know various reasons some of them are straight up vengeance like, oh, I'm going to go back yep. and I'm going to get after it. These people are going to pay. Some of it, hey, for myself, you know, kind of like what you were saying, like I, I feel like I, I I, can't do what I am supposed to do, so I want to prove that I can go back and do it. What, what, what was like the driving reason for you? If you, had, if you had to pick one, maybe it's just all those things, which is a perfectly acceptable answer too. I mean, vengeance is certainly a part of it, right? Like, how dare you? <laughs> I'm the only one who gets to do that to people. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, what a crazy, uh, crazy thing to think like that. But you kind of do. Like, you think you're invincible, right? So I needed to prove to myself that I could still do the job that I wanted to do. I was pissed about it. And I was at a point in my life where I was still very tied to what the job meant. I derived so much of my personality and who I was from that job because it was all that I had focused on for the vast majority of my life at that point that I, I didn't I didn't know who I would be without that. So it was a combination of all of those things that just kind of kept driving me towards going back. And there was I mean there was never a second's hesitation. I like I knew I was going to not stop. I just didn't know that the road the road with which I was going to take to not stop. You know what's weird too is, and, and I, you know, for guys that like you and I that are full on institutionalized in the military, it's almost like I, I, when I was in, I didn't understand other options. Like yes. it wasn't like, well, I could do this. Like right now, we can sit back. You know, Andy, you could have gotten out back then. Oh, you sure. Gone and done. It's so clear to see that now. Yeah. But when you're in, you're just no, no. Well. If you can't do this, well, then you did, there's nothing else that you actually can do. This is the only option in the world. And if we're being totally honest, a lot of that is by design. Uh, I'm sure it is. The military and especially the SEAL teams. What do we do to our buddies who want to get out? You know, like, I am thinking about getting out. Hey, fuck you, quitter. Quitter. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we're, we, I mean, we're the Bro, most. Bro, I, I did 20 years, and one of my buddies was like, I said, hey, man, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, like, at the 18-year mark, I told one of my yeah. close friends, I'm like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm going to retire at 20. They're like, quitter. quitter. Like, but think, awesome. about, think about the training from day one. It's about the guy to your left and right, <clears throat> right? And then, then you get back from a mission, you take care of the team gear first. You know, the yeah. last thing you do is you take care of yourself. So we're. You are the bottom of the priority you're list. You're the bottom you're of the priority list. Life 
is the bottom of the priority list in the SEAL teams. And that has secondary and tertiary effects when it comes to understanding what you can do or options that you would have outside of the military. I'm not saying they do it by design, but the system that we come from naturally puts on a set of blinders, which I think is essential to make us as effective as we are. You're right. I think I think it is a, a complete secondary effect. It's not like there's some evil training person in the sky that's going, okay, the way we can get these guys to stay in is do this. No, yeah. the way that the SEAL teams has evolved to be the best we can be in combat is to make this thing your number one priority, which I say that all the time. I got asked this the other day. I was doing a, uh, working with a company, and you know, some guy was asking me, you know, how did you do your work-life balance? when you're in the SEAL teams and I'm like you know this is an answer I shouldn't be giving I'm not authorized the only you know what you do you marry an awesome girl and then you focus on your job that's what I did I married an awesome girl and I focused on my job and my wife knew she knew it wasn't like I covered up and said no no babe you're my number one priority it was like no 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 the teams and then the teams and then the teams, and then everything, and then like jujitsu, yeah. and then everything else, and then you're you're down here. That's the way it is, and I'm not trying to be an asshole. That's the that's the reality of the situation, and that's why yeah, it's uh, that's that's why another reason why when when guys get wounded, and they go yeah, well, what else are you gonna do? Yeah. So you get to team three. What? So what was your position? <laughs> when you, because, because, so uh, by the way, so just like, so people understand this LDO thing, which by the way, I don't know if you know this, but it's completely gone. It's, yeah, they shut it, it down. They, they shut it down. Yeah. It's one of the, if not the only way to get commissioned without a college degree. Right. I'm, right. I'm working on a high school diploma here, people. <laughs> Public school education, barely. Santa Cruz. And, but you showed up and like to this day, right at this moment in time, I, and I was quote unquote running the training, I have no idea what your job actually actually was how awesome is that that is pretty awesome <laughs> well done but you know i know i could tell you exactly what role you fulfilled yeah. you know as a leader but i don't know where you would have broken out on an org chart. what was I your was actual training job? officer for a task unit for the seal team three in general how I was, come you were running around with a machine gun dude during workup <laughs> because <laughs> they would have failed their ore okay i mean the platoons would come or like you know uh the SEA would be like, hey, uh, <clears throat> we failed land warfare. Will you come out to Nyland with us for the OREs? I'm like, absolutely. I'll come out and swing blanks. <laughs> and like, I mean, for one, like, I I have – I never wanted a desk job. I, I, I loved – the best job in the SEAL teams, and you know this, is an E5 shooter. Absolutely. When I My first combat deployment, my responsibility was a sledgehammer. Then I moved up to a hoolie, and then I moved to a shotgun, and then I could do whatever I wanted to do, and it was the best job in the world, and like I, that's all I wanted to do. So although I was an officer. And you get to be, by the way, you get to be a master oh, with a sledgehammer so or a master with a hooligan tool. Yeah. You just become, it's your life. Precise, so efficient. Beautiful. Uh, and so, you know, like I put my officer package in, but let's say like 20% of me was like, you know what? This is just a means to an end. I'm going to figure out a way to get back on the battlefield because LDOs are not supposed nope. to be tactical leaders at all. You're a line officer, but I ha- should have never been – well, I should have never been by the letter of the law of the LDO manual in a tactical leadership position, which I eventually worked uh, my way to, not by any kind of design. But I went to Team 3, <laughs> the training hill, and, you know, they're getting ready to send people to Afghanistan, and no one's ever set foot there. Yeah. And, you know, this the skipper 
wanted to send me there. And then the troop commander I had a great relationship with. And they were short an officer here and there. So I'd like, uh, maybe I'll just go out to San Clemente Island for a little bit. You know, maybe I'll get on the roof and throw some grenades in the window. It's hard to say what I'm going to do. <laughs> and so I just, like, just kind of started going out there again. And then like went out to Nyland when they when the, the troop failed their land warfare. I went out with them and tried just to try to go and do smart stuff to yeah. help them out, to relieve some – give the leadership some distance and it, in space. Yeah, and know? it was awesome. I mean it's awesome when guys that were experienced would come through like yourself. It's just so good to have guys like you coming through, especially – because you were you were super experienced, really good tactically, and super humble. It wasn't like you were out there like no. You were like, oh, this is awesome training. Let's like, oh yeah, this. Hey, we need to do this. It was just just so good for the troop to see that type of leadership out there. Plus, I like offensive maneuvers. <laughs> <laughs> and when I'm telling guys to move forward, they're like, oh, we can do that. I'm like, oh yeah, oh yes, oh yes, we can do that, and you should. And then they just they weren't because that you know you get a junior officer in a community full of A-types, and most of the people that work for them have more experience than them. They're hesitant to make a call because they we eat our own because yeah. we're the most voracious community ever. Yeah. So they're afraid to make an offensive call when they should make an offensive call. Like I've heard you say it before, and I know we have the same position. Like the default move should be aggressive, drive forward, not away. Like put your enemy on their heels. You don't need to be on your heels at all. Like take their space and time away to make a decision. Shorten their... Shorten your OODA loop and get in the middle of theirs and just start wreaking havoc. Uh, but you got to have, again, time in the saddle to be comfortable making those calls. And a lot of it, I noticed, was pattern recognition. Like, oh, I've seen this. Mm-hmm. Here, okay, uh, high ground's over there. Sure, let's get some guys over there. Hey, they're going to come around this building. Don't ask don't, don't ask me now. Just go over <laughs> just there. Just set security, Just please. go over there, please. Like, <laughs> you can see you can, it's pattern recognition yeah. from time in the saddle. And because I was exposed to awesome people throughout my career and I watched them and I wrote down what they did and I just have always tried to be a sponge. You have to be a sponge and suck up knowledge. And so then you you do another deployment yep. and you do end up in a leadership position. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which again, good job. You said it was what did you just say it was unintended or something like that? It was relatively but unintended. Relatively. I like okay, you, yeah. you quantified it now, thank yeah. you, because I was gonna have to call bullshit on you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh so I went through the last, you know, the troop commander from that troop was like, Hey, we're you're gonna come over. I was supposed to be the opso on that deployment at a fire base that was in between the two platoons. One of the officers was having a kid. He wanted to stay back for about the first month, month and a half. And so they had no AOIC. I'm a minted O1 at this point, freshy butter bar. One of my favorite things to do totally in the side was to put my camis on with my butter bars and I'd go to the ops meetings over at group Yeah, and I'd let like uh, E6s and E7s like talk to me like I was a brand new guy. Cause I always, I mean, I look relatively young and they're like, you know, Later on, once you got some, you know, time <laughs> and, and in the these teams. these guys are actually guys that you would probably, or in many cases, have been in the teams longer than. Oh, for sure, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. And I'd be like, uh huh, tell me more. And then like, and, and then I'd catch them later on in my khakis, I, and they're like, oh, I I, I got to admit, I had some fun as a butter bar as well. I got to admit, I mean, I just like, like, oh, oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much for the guidance. I hope one day I know as much as you do. And they're just like, yeah, new guy. I, I told, I told, uh, I told a chief, a senior chief actually that was kind of calling me out like butter bar at, at when I was at team two and I was telling him in front of my platoons there and they all they all knew me and I go well you know you know senior you gotta you gotta understand 
ensigns run the navy, <laughs> and he he is he went, but that way he's, you could see him turning red instantaneously into orbit. Yeah, instantaneously yep. in orbit. He actually said, you know, you guys need to straighten this ensign out. And I said, hey, why don't you do it? I'll meet you out the mill vans. Let's call it noon. I'll be out there yeah. warming up. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be out there by yourself. <laughs> Oh, that was so good. Yeah, so, you know, the the true commander was like, hey, do the last month of training with us, which was the San Clemente block. Oh, yeah. Uh, so went out there with the San Clemente block. Uh, the skipper was like, hey, go over there as the opso, but we're going to slide you out with this platoon. We're having some potential leadership issues mm-hmm. with the OIC, <laughs> a man that I know you're familiar with. <laughs> because we experienced them largely together. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think and this is me speaking for why I think he did that. I think he did me he put me out there as a as a safety mechanism. Right. I don't know, I don't think he had anything else to do. Uh, so I went out there and uh, he ended up being relieved and then uh, the skipper because, I mean I was an 01 wearing 03. Uh, and 04 when Scott wasn't paying attention because I would just take his collar devices off and like whatever. It's not like I'm an 03 either, so I would just put on whatever collar device I could get my hands on. Good, and, thing, good thing there was no colonel bars available. <laughs> oh, I'd been wearing. If I could find some general stars, I'd have been rocking those things. And uh, I mean, it was one of the best deployments of all the stuff that I did uh, while I was in. I think what I was the proudest of is a lot of the guys I deployed with were people that I had put through buds Mm -hmm. and to see them overseas on their first deployment uh, and and the only word for it is is afraid to do something because of the consequences you know there's there's as you know there's a lot of oversight if you pull the trigger on somebody you had better be able to articulate why you did that Uh, you need to be able to conduct yourself over the radio you have to be able to paint the picture there's a correct way to brief there's the ways that you know you got to play you know it's mental judo Mm -hmm. you know and and interacting with people and to see these young guys who had no experience and afraid to afraid's not probably the best word but hesitant to make decisions and then at the end of the deployment just sharp teeth out knowing what they need to do and i can just sit back and I'm, it's not and again that that's a lot of that is them getting that experience but i was just glad that i was able to be there to provide that buffer because i wasn't going to let anything happen while i was out there to the best of my ability like i always picked the most dangerous place to be i always wanted to be in the position where there's going to be a decision to be made like that that's just the way that i want to be like Where's the most dangerous place to be? Where's the most optimal place to be? Put me in, coach. I'm going to be right here. And then to try to teach other people to do that exact same thing and then to step back, that to me is probably what I'm the most proud of of is the growth of the people that I was there with. You know that you talk about that mental judo thing, which, again, this is one that's going to be hard for civilians to understand how much. uh, You know, it's like a bureaucratic force that exists in the military. And. Really, you have to be you have to be able to to navigate through that and that was that was the thing for me That I always look back and I go I wish I would have done a better job of teaching that to guys because I had no problem teaching them the tactical side of things and then if I really was close with someone or really spent some time with them I'd be able to get through the rest of it and say like okay by the way this is how you have to do this this is this is how you have to walk this line this is what you have to say in these situations and they'd be great but some guys would catch like some guys would catch the uh the the surface Jocko, right? <laughs> the, just like the surface Jocko, which is like 
kill, right? Yeah. Which is which is awesome, right? That's absolutely part of part of it, right? But guys that only caught the surface, Jocko, sometimes they'd get caught up later because they'd say, you know, oh, this guy was a this guy was you know risk averse. I'm like, well. You know, here's what you got to do when you got a guy yeah. that's risk averse. Or this guy's an ego. Well, here's what you got to do. And here's got to handle them. So that's something that when I had the opportunity at the time, but that thing, the other thing about it is there's no, there's no training for that. That's just, you I was just going to bring up the saddle. Like yeah. that is, there is no one that says, and it's hard to even simulate because that means you got to simulate some other human beings, yeah. rank and characteristics and personality. That and might all this. change halfway through your deployment. That, that might change halfway through your briefing. Yeah. You know, you can brief a guy that's all in a good mood and all of a sudden he turns because he saw you said something that you got to learn how to deal with that. And that political side, that's what it is. Basically, it's political and it's relationships, building those things up. That is so key and once you get into the leadership position i hate to say this i hate to say it once you're in the leadership position that is at least as important as what you're going to do tactically i mean the seal teams have made their mark kinetically but we get our go no go off of powerpoint absolutely i mean (laughs) that's it i've had briefs come back because the helicopter was facing the wrong way on the insertion slide. I've almost gotten to fist fights. I'm like, listen, it's Helvetica 12, not 11. We're not doing Times New Roman shit now, all right? Ba- the new battle get, out space- of get out of my face with that Times New Roman, yeah. son. The battle space commander said it's Helvetica, bold sometimes only on the X-Fill slide. But like, I mean, I've, it's insane. Like yeah. we, we, have, we can bring some of the most amazing combat power to bear but only if the leadership can articulate and navigate what the battle space owner wants. Cause we don't make sense to a lot of people who don't come from our background yeah. and you got to learn to, you got to learn to read what they're saying and speak their language. And then you just, you, know, you got to maneuver. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest thing is you got to maneuver. And then, then you can be so wildly effective. It doesn't matter how good you are tactically. If you can't get outside of the wire, yeah. I mean, and it's truly, if I tell people this all the time, you want to shut down the SEAL teams, kill Microsoft Office. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> yeah. We're done. Yeah, the, the whole military is actually oh, very, it's, you know. It is a bureaucracy. You said it's kind yeah. of a bureaucracy. Yeah. It is the biggest, I mean, it, it's 100% bureaucratic. I mean, it's amazing. And as an E5, you're like, I just, I just want to go jam my mags up. And then make them empty. And you're like, yeah, that's awesome. I'm going to be up for 12 hours looking for the appropriate helicopter icon. <laughs> and I may get sassy and have it move in with helicopter noises. It depends. Yeah. On how sa- and then you got to be able to brief it, right? Because then there's a whole other skill. Like, I, mean, I don't know how many times you have to go and not only present the brief, but like talk to the guy who's going to say yeah. yes or no and develop that relationship. And yeah. You're selling your operation. In many 100%. cases, you're selling your operation until you get that relationship where they're coming to you yep. and saying, "This is hey, this," which is the best possible case. And I was blessed to end up in that situation where it was just a t- total mind meld of, "Hey, whatever you guys want to do, what can you do here? Can you?" That's that's when you that's when you just are loving life, and it doesn't get any better than that. Good times with PowerPoint. Oh my god. <sighs> So yeah, you got you, you got hit the with, control key in the arrow. It only moved a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you need to move that oh, icon God. just to get it centered. I know so much about PowerPoint that I could never forget if I wanted to. Oh, it's so horrible. You. So that was a, that was an awesome deployment, though. It was awesome for different reasons. I mean, don't get me wrong. I as an O one, I was carrying generally my three hundred one mag and two javelin missiles to high ground <laughs> positions and coming back with them 
all empty the majority of the time. So I got to have. Uh, so yes, that does go in the awesome deployment <laughs> yeah. box. Yes. So I got to have a little bit of what we'll call a hoot, <laughs> and then, but again, professionally developing for me too right. because I didn't have any experience being an opso for a task unit. And you want to talk about relationship stuff? The sometimes you know the base that we were on. I just developed a relationship with their N three or S three, and ended up I was selling myself. We had a great relationship. I could come to him the day before, be like, "Hey, we're looking at doing this." He's like, "Yep, no problem. Let me know. Let's line up a QRF." And it just—it's so much. Pulling the trigger is easy. All the stuff you got to do to get to that point is so hard, and it just doesn't make the movies because it's boring. Yeah, no, there's there will <laughs> there will literally never be a movie oh or a book about that crap. Why can't we have a movie about a seventy-two hour planning cycle? <laughs> I don't understand. Where's the three meter imagery? God damn it! This is five. I heard one of my <laughs> platoon commanders, not Leif, the other, the Delta platoon commander, was telling someone, and he goes, he goes, you know, someone's like, oh yeah, you guys got to, and he said. Jo- I watched Jocko literally beat his head up against a wall for every single operation that we did. I was like, oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> and that wasn't the conventional side that yeah. I was beaten up against. It was, you know, it was our chain of command, which yep. is very, um, which can be very micro focused on little things from time to time, occasionally. You get but, the broad spectrum of leadership yeah. inside of the teams. Not all of it is good. But you. Whichever whichever game you got to play, that's what you got to play, and that's exactly yeah. what I did. And that's you know that's why I always say the I had the same relationship with every boss I'd ever have. Yeah, no matter who they were, or what how crazy they were, or how awesome they were, they trusted me, and they're gonna give me what I needed to do my job. Yep. So that was your last deployment, then it was. And then you went to trade at trade at, and I was gone. Was uh, I, when did you, you get were there? check. I got there in August of twenty ten. Yep, I was, well, I, I... I think the last time I literally saw you before today was in the hallway right by your old office. You were walking out, and I was coming back from deployment, and we like, I was High like, five. hey, what's up, dude? Hey, man, yeah. later. Yeah, so like five years ago, that's no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, seven years ago. What'd you do there? Uh, I was the opso. Okay. I think, I mean... It's, did, you, did you get to go out at all? I didn't do anything. I augmented the leapfrogs. Um, <laughs> I'm not, I, I don't do good when it comes, I mean, I, I did my job, but like I'm not a paperwork, you know, ninja yeah, yeah, yeah. at all. No, and nor is there really, it's not really an opso, much like the yeah. trade at guy is not the CO, he's the OIC. Right. So a lot of those positions, there's redundancy. There was a training warrant. Yeah. You know, it like there was. There also, was, it's fairly repetitive. So there's not yeah. like an at a team where it's the first time you're going to go through this yeah. and now it's everything. So. You get through two or three cycles, and it's like, okay, you could put this thing on autopilot. It's the same thing every three, six months, whatever mm-hmm. it is. So I got medically retired. Uh, I was going to just get out of the military. Uh, I came back from that deployment, and I was talking to uh, the officer detailer about what I would need to do to continue my career. And she said, well, you know, since you haven't done your AOIC or your OIC tour, what we're going to need you to do is two back-to-back AOIC, OIC, and then you're going to do your, you know, your disassociated tour. I'm just like, we we can stop right now. Like, my <laughs> wife's not going to tolerate that. Like, I think she's at the vast limit. I was at the limit. My body, like my ankle, I almost had to medevac myself out a couple times. Like, roll my ankle extremely bad on a on an offset patrol mm-hmm. in. Like, laying on target with my foot up in the air. It was just, I was, I recognized it like my time was over. Uh, so I researched what it would take for me to stay in and continue, and it was not tenable. So I was just going to get out of the military. And I was five days from my separation date and went to go get my physical. And the doc is like, no, <laughs> I'm not signing this. Right on. Good for him. Uh, they extended me a year 
I mean, I had to go. I went out to the Nyko out mm-hmm. at uh, Bethesda, did that as far as the kind of the horsepower for the write-up, got the whole full assessment done and end up getting uh, medically retired, which was a huge benefit to myself, all thanks to that doc who was like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to sign this. So. Yeah, that is awesome. And there's plenty of team guys that, you know, spend their entire career. I'm not going to the doctor. I'm not going to. And that's yeah. another thing that gets conditioned into you going through basic SEAL training, which is don't go to medical no matter what. I was in the same way. Even after getting shot, my medical record was thin. And, you know, I was going through the questionnaire and the interview at the actual discharge physical. And he's like, what? Like, you couldn't find any of the documentation. And then I left NICA with like 300 pages. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you read that thing, it's like this guy will never – I should be in a wheelchair right now with a straw. <laughs> like you read that thing and I'm like, oh my gosh. Uh, and then you, know, you get to wait to the bureaucracy, submit a package to the med board and six months later they're like, okay, you're out. And that was it. That was it. No retirement ceremony. I just was like, hey, I uh, went and talked to the OIC. I was like, hey – um, it's almost lunchtime. I'm going to leave now, and I'm I'm never going to come back. <laughs> <laughs> How many years was that for you? One month shy of 17. Yeah. Yeah. And so I literally went in. I was like, hey, it's almost lunch. Um, I'm going to leave. I'm not going to come back. And he was like, all right, cool. See you later. <laughs> I had some terminal leave saved up at like 90 days worth, and I just gone. Yeah. Never went back in. Yeah. <laughs> I think I went and got my DD-214 or like my retirement ID card like a year later. Yeah. <laughs> just never went back. That's crazy, man. Yeah. It's crazy how you do that time and then it's over like that. In, in a blink of an eye. In a blink of an eye. Yeah. I remember that. I was all big. I did the retirement ceremony, did that, came back. Got all my, the rest of my gear, which was all packed up in my drying cage, went up, grabbed it, pulled in the back, threw it in the back of my van, drived out the gate. That was it. Yep. No more. Yeah. Never. Badge is gone. That's it. Done. Never to never to be back. Twenty years done. Yep, <laughs> it's bizarre. So then you get into the afterlife. Indeed. <laughs> and, yes. and what's that been like? So what what year did you what year was that that you retired? I got retired the last day of June, twenty thirteen. Okay. So I'm coming up on uh, this year will be four years. Uh, I had fortunately I was kind of double dipping on weekends. I had a, a job that I was doing on the weekends, so I transitioned to doing that full time. Uh, and I dabbled in a lot of stuff. I mean, I got 3,500 hours of flight time. I typed rated in a Gulfstream jet, a Citation 525 jet, which gets me like five other jets I could fly. I did. Uh, when did you rack up all those hours? <sighs> what I do on my weekends is not, you know, the business of the Navy. <laughs> uh, I flew hard. I mean, I, I was just flying a ton. Okay. Uh, I got my pilot's license on my own when I was in, and then all the rest of the licenses came in the two to three years after after I was in, but I just was cranking out hours. I had a company that I was working for that was paying for all the training so I could fly as much as I wanted oh, to. Nice. So I dove in to the bucket, both feet. Uh, I did charter flying for a bit. Uh, I mean, I was managing licensing and sponsorship deals for an organization and it just, it, everything kind of just morphed. I left that organization, got back into teaching uh, military guys a little bit on the jump side of the house. Mm-hmm. I've been passionate about jumping ever since the first jump that I did. How many jumps do you have right now? Uh, just over 6,000, which seems like a lot. Yeah, until you guys that have 29,000. Oh, yeah, I, mean, I, I jump at Skydive San Diego all the time. And if you work in the sport for any period of time, you'll be at 10, 15, 20,000. It's not... It's not uncommon, but in the military, it's just that's the school bus to get to work. So it's an ancillary skill set at best. So I couldn't pursue it until I got out. But I, uh, when I got, it was hard for me when I got out. If I'm being honest, um, I got to a point where I couldn't watch the news anymore. You know, 2013, all of the ground in Iraq that was sweat 
and blood and tears of, of people that we know to gain was being eroded. And I describe it like watching the tide go out an inch at a time until all of a sudden it's gone. And I used to make the news. And now I'm sitting here on the couch watching it and I had to turn it off. And, it, and I really struggled with finding something that I thought mattered. And it's, it's, it was tough for me. I didn't think a lot about what I was going to do when I was out, when I was in, for reasons that we, we kind of already talked about. It's a natural path that you take when you're in. Uh, but it took me like a year and a half to really get my head on straight and figure out what it is that I want to do. I still don't even know how I'm going to do it. Uh, but I know that I want to make a difference. I, I want to do – I want to make this – country a better place than it is right now. I want to take the awesome stuff that I was exposed to when I was in the teams from the people that I was fortunate to be surrounded by and and make people better with that information. How I'm going to do that, I don't know, but that's kind of the circular path that I'm on like half of my year. And the <laughs> other half, I just dress up in a squirrel suit and jump out of airplanes and off of cliffs. <laughs> Which is nice. It doesn't suck. Uh, I'm not going to do it forever, though. I, I mean, I look at it as something that's enriching for me and empowering for me. But uh, there's a there's a timeline for how long I could do it. I mean, I'm a bad landing away from not being able to jump anymore, and mm-hmm. I and I take it very seriously. I have a very structured training protocol. I don't let myself get out of currency, whether it be jumping or packing parachutes or. I mean, I treat it like a military operation. It doesn't make it safer for me, but I try to pay. Uh, attention more than anybody else who is around me. And my goal is to never be surprised. Like I don't ever, I want to understand what's coming and I, and I don't like, and it happens occasionally you'll, you'll jump off of a cliff or you're jump out of an airplane or something will happen that surprises you. And I try to avoid that at all costs. Cause I find that, you know, that's when the catastrophic stuff can occur, but it's, uh, you got to find the next step. I mean, you and I both know people who derive their entire identity from what they used to do. And it's tough to sit back and watch them not be able to depart from that because it becomes, it's self-destructive. Yeah, because it doesn't last forever. It can't last forever. I mean, you're renting your trident. It's not yours. You're, at best you can move the marker in the SEAL teams, hopefully in the right direction. Maybe leave a little bit of legacy if you did. You know, the legacy that you should leave is making it better than when you got there. But that's the best you can do. And then you got to put it away. Even if you do 20 years the, with the average lifespan of an American, you got some time left. Mm-hmm. And the military retirement check, it's not massive. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to need another J-O-B. Uh, but what I needed, I needed a purpose. And that's where I started doing you know, fundraising for the SEAL Foundation. Yep. That to me was huge. Teaching the military guys, which kind of felt like I had – not a foot in the fight, but I had some impact again and just trying to shorten their learning curve uh, because I mean, they expect these guys to know so much stuff yep. that if you could just shorten their learning curve and give them a little bit of space to breathe, you know, to take the stress off. And that stuff's real. Yeah. Like that stuff is real. And when you when you impart that knowledge on young guys, it is real. When you make that learning curve shorter and steeper and faster, that is real. That has a real impact on those yep. on those kids going out there. And it's those little lessons that they learned. And I, I mean, I, I still hear that from guys that come back and, and they say, yep, yeah, we did this. Yep. Cover move. You know, I'm like, yes. Like, I, I'm so happy to hear that because I know it's kind of like the early days of jujitsu in the fact that we didn't really, in the early days of jujitsu, th- there wasn't as much knowledge 
as there is now. And now the first three days you go to jujitsu, you're gonna learn about underhooks, you're gonna learn about body position, you're gonna learn about hip movement. I didn't learn, no one taught me that stuff. Back back the day, no one, no one taught you that stuff. <laughs> you just had to figure it out. And if somebody teaches it to you, it's like you take a quantum leap. Yeah. Yep. And it's the same thing with the, the guys that are in the military, and they can get that quantum leap just by saying, oh, here's a perspective of leadership that it took me, jackass Jocko, you know, 14 years and screwing up a bunch of things to go, oh, this is what you need to do in these situations. So to be able to say, look, you don't need to be the jackass that I was, all you need to do is know this little bit tidbit right here and this yeah. little thing over here. Yeah. And that definitely has a, has a huge impact on those guys, and it's, it, it is awesome to feel that. Yeah, and it makes them better learning the other stuff because they're less stressed out. They have a better understanding, and it's just and like ninety percent of the stuff I teach, I'm like, listen, it's pattern recognition. I saw this so many times, and then I did this, and it defeated that. So just do this. (laughs) Just trust me and do this, and you'll be better. And then they do, and they're like, oh wow, that was awesome. I'm like, yeah, I know. That's why I told you. (laughs) (laughs) How about the? uh, You talk about the foundation. Yeah. What are you doing the found? Tell us a little bit about the foundation and how, if people want to support the foundation, what's the best way to get that done? Yeah, uh, so obviously, there. I think their last stat I heard, there's 40,000 service-based organizations that help people peripheral to the military. So there's a variety of choices. And if you're from an Army family, awesome, go support an Army charity, right? I obviously have a, a close DNA tie to SEALs. So uh, a buddy of mine recommended uh, trying some stuff, skydiving, in the skydiving world to try to drive attention to fundraise for the SEAL Foundation because just like I've never had, I think, a unique thought in my entire life. I swear that every idea I've ever had came from somebody else. It was like this one was his. Uh, but to me, that was the link to finding a purpose again because I realized that, okay, my my days of putting my toes on the line are over, but there will always be people with their toes on the line. And the next best step is let's create a buffer for the families to step in because, I mean, you've seen it. It's a I, The knock on the door is a – tornado wrapped inside of a tsunami with a hurricane at the same time. I mean, it is destructive. So let's try to do something that helps the families. Uh, and that's what the SEAL Foundation does. Everything from educational support to legacy preservation uh, and everything in between. I mean, you can go – the Navy SEAL Foundation has a, an awesome website. Uh, and there's people who do GoFundMes, which is what I did, or go to the foundation and donate directly because, I mean, they're, you can look at their rating as well too. It's like – 96 cents out of every buck goes to what they espouse it's going to go to. It's awesome. Like, it's a great foundation. Uh, yeah, do some research on it, get involved, and skip a latte one day, you know, and yeah. donate five yeah. bucks. And it goes to it goes to a good – it goes to a good cause. Uh, I've been into some houses where, you know, kids are getting raised by a memory of a father and a picture over a fireplace, and no money will ever replace that, but it maybe will make their life a little bit easier. Yeah, no doubt about that. What was the, what was the record you were going after? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, the completely arbitrary distance, lateral uh, measurement of distance in a wingsuit. So, I that was the idea where all the good ideas start, which was in a bar over a cocktail. Yep. And Buddy was like, "Hey, man, you should go try to set a world record in your wingsuit." I'm like, "Well, I don't even own one yet. So, what are you talking about? I'll do it, of course. But like, <laughs> yeah. what's the record? I Sign mean, me up. And the, what is it? A wing? Yeah. What? I was like, if, I mean, yeah, I'll obviously crush it. But what is it exactly again? And where do I get one of those? Uh, and it was uh, trying to set the uh, furthest distance, 
our farthest distance, sorry, the farthest distance flown in a wingsuit. So uh, I bought a wingsuit and after jumping it for less than a year, which I don't recommend to anybody to do this ever, uh, I got hooked up with a really good mentor, the guy who actually taught me how to base jump, taught me how to fly the suit. And we went up to Davis, California, and I jumped out of a caravan at 36,500 feet, got into a lovely spin which I had, didn't ever happen before, so that was a great experience. It was new for everybody. <laughs> and uh, got out of it and then just flew the suit as far as I could and ended up breaking two world records, one for the distance that you fly before opening your parachute, and then the second one is they tack on the distance uh, from when you open your parachute to when you touch the ground. So you keep mm-hmm. flying forward. Yeah, and I had an on-heading opening, so it just opened up in that direction, and I was exhausted, so I just laid there like a limp piece of meat. And augered into the ground into a farmer's field because I had no, I like my landing zone was earth. Mm. <laughs> I couldn't see the airport that I was, I had some visual indicators. What was it like? How far was it? 18.25 miles. Nice. So I got out of this bird and I passed. Did you really get into a spin when you came out? Oh, yeah. What happened? Just no air? I'm just not really good in a windsuit. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't have the requisite skill or competence to be attempting what I was attempting. <laughs> but it was a challenge thrown in front of me, and I was like, of course I'm going to do this. I had, I literally had not been jumping wingsuits. I did that jump in August. I got my first wingsuit in December of the year prior. It's not a, not recommended for people. Uh, so I got in the spin, and I got out of it. But I got out of the plane. I, I knew where the airport was. And I knew I was going to fly in that direction, but I passed the airport at over 10,000 feet in the air. Mm-hmm. And then I was just looking at fields in Davis. So <laughs> I just put my head down and was flying. I didn't have an altimeter on me. It was awesome. There were so many things that were just <laughs> – I was eyeballing it, calibrating before I went. I was like, camera one, camera two, camera one. All right, let's go. <laughs> but I had just come back from a base jumping trip to Europe. Thank goodness I had because I'm flying. I'm like, those trees are looking really big. Oh, yeah. Those, those trees are looking really big. I'm going to pull, you know. Moderately low opening altitude, flew straight into the dirt, and yeah, people are like, oh, you gonna? Because it's been broken since then. Uh, a marine did, uh-huh. and people are like, oh, you gonna go for it again? I'm like, no, <laughs> never, <laughs> ever. Well, I try. I got into the spin because the plane, the the Cessna two hundred six, the caravan is not designed to be that high. Like mm-hmm. it had a supercharged engine, a different propeller system. Everything was stripped out of there except for the huge oxygen bottle. It was just the pilot, the oxygen tech, and me. And, you know, normally when you're skydiving, they'll pull back on the throttle to slow down. It, you know, it's called giving you a cut, a cut of the airspeed. Well, if he would have done that at that altitude, we'd have fallen out of the sky. So he's like got his fist on the <laughs> throttle with his foot on the dash pulling back. And I opened the door and I stuck my head out. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. And I'm jumping like the biggest wingsuit on the market and they're like they're a combination of a prom dress and a straight jacket (laughs) and i got out of the plane and it just inflated and like oh boy here we go (laughs) that's good times right there oh yeah coming at you full speed but you you raised some money for the for the foundation yeah it's like a hundred fifty thousand bucks for the foundation and you know from that i developed a great relationship with them um the CEO of the foundation is married to my first troop chief uh, that I had when I was at the East Coast. So there's a great tie-in. Uh, and anytime I, uh, they, yeah, anytime I know, they call I know me. that guy well. Yeah. <laughs> but it, so anytime that they call me, though, like my default answer is yes. Like, of course, I'll help out anything that awesome. I can do. And it, I mean, honestly, like I won't say that it saved me, but it helped it helped get me back on the road that I should have been and to have a purpose like that. And then 
I mean, I, I bet you I'd, I'd hypothesize that for you working with organizations and leaders and seeing the light come on makes you, it, you know what I mean? It, it's, it gives you a purpose in life again to yeah, impart absolutely. those lessons. It's yeah. exactly the same thing for me. So one built to the other that kind of got my feet in the, in the pool of interfacing with people like that. And I realized that it makes a difference and it's important. That's awesome. Well, it's been awesome to, uh, to hang out with you. Yeah. I appreciate it. Once and, every you know, seven years, we should once, do it. Yeah, seven years, we'll do it again. <laughs> and, and speaking of purpose, mm-hmm. Echo Charles, we know you have one purpose, and that is to kind of inform anybody that might want to support this podcast yep. on how they might be able to do that. Just to clarify. Oh, oh, here we go. My purpose to inform is part of a greater purpose. Okay. Understood. Undisclosed for now. Understood. Hey, when you jumped out with a wingsuit, yeah, and you went into the spin, did you think that that was that was it for you? No, I never think like that. <laughs> Straight it's up, never huh? it. Dang. <laughs> I was saying somebody commented. I said the other day on. I forget. I don't know if we had someone on the podcast, but I was saying that, like, when I'm flying in an aircraft in a in a commercial airliner, mm-hmm. I think if this thing crashes, I'm gonna live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah, 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 like, yeah. Oh yeah, I'll f- yeah. I'm gonna yeah. grab this chair seat and I'm yeah. gonna turn it into something. And I'm gonna throw it in the water that's gonna break the yeah. surface tension. I'm gonna live. What no next worries. question? Yeah, yeah okay. I mean, like, I, I'm not saying that it was gonna work out great for me, but <laughs> I'm gonna die missing my fingernails because I'm clawing my way towards yeah. victory. Like, it's the thought never enters the mind. Like, okay, I need to give up now because it's over. Yeah. Negative. Not that you have yeah. that much of a choice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. But you still fight. Period. Check, check. Yeah, no, awesome. that's good. Cause uh, yeah. Yeah, I'd probably be the same way. You know, yeah, totally. that's how I am too. You know, fully. <laughs> anyway. Uh let's yeah, talk so, about some support. Yeah, how about that? Let's do it. Let's talk about on it. You you know on it? You heard of on it? I do, yeah. Of course, of course you have. Everyone has. There you go. You're good. Perhaps just check in. I don't, I don't need this. Okay. Hey, hey. I need it. Anyway. <laughs> On it, I uh, got some more krill oil, so I'm good to go. Baseline. Um, on it is a, what do you call them, a sponsor. Supporter? Supporter, yeah. So if you want to support uh, this podcast and or yourself at the same time, and you're into supplements, you work out a lot, um, we recommend on it supplements. We take on it supplements. It's the only one, the best one. Anyway, if you want 10% off on it, dot com slash jocko that's how you get the 10 percent off anyway yeah that's a good one uh Pete, by good. the way the last podcast yeah as people noted yeah we had colonel reader on here you know a vietnam veteran and i pre-briefed echo i said look this guy's flying in he got up at three o'clock in the morning he's coming in here at six o'clock at night to do a three-hour podcast he's been in a conference all day when it comes to you know time to go through your stuff, go through it quickly. And people were said, "Hey, did you have Echo on a leash?" And I said, "We just pre-briefed. We're just respecting the colonel's time." So I, I get the feeling right now we could be paying for that. Right? Yeah, <laughs> metaphorically, I did have a leash for sure. Get and it out I, there, I, man. I Explain it. it up. Usually, <laughs> usually I tell a, a, a cool story because it's not like hey take uh, krill oil and then i don't take krill oil yep. or i take it and i'm like whatever this doesn't work it works so during the week you know, i work out and i kind of talk about my experience positive or negative but in this case never negative because it actually works it's one of the only uh supplement companies that you know will work anyway <laughs> I'm not going to go into any stories. I only worked out a few times this week, and it's all Why? the same story. 
Why did you only work out a few times this week? Oh, uh, various um, things. Oh, you know. Okay. I worked out today. What? Okay. No, I'm just making sure it sounds like there might be some slack in no, the Echo's world right yeah, now. Yeah. I, you know, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Nonetheless, even even if I told you the story, it'd be a redundant story. Okay. You know we'll what I'm saying? That. Like my joints feel good. You know, people know that already. Taking krill oil, that's what happens. <laughs> anyway, if you like these supplements, if you don't, actually, if you don't know about the supplements, get them. Make your own evaluation. You don't got to listen to me anymore. Anyway. So let's switch over to Amazon. Amazon click through. So how that works is if you want to support this podcast, before you do your Amazon shopping, go to jockopodcast.com. Click on the Amazon banner. Then do your shopping. Supports. I made the sodium in the water analogy. You know, you know when you it's like it's not just sodium, it's like potassium. It's like heavy metals, I think it's called. You throw them in water, boom, big explosion. I make the analogy that clicking through Amazon is a small action. Takes what? Three seconds. Right? Yeah, maybe not even. And you think, oh yeah, I'm gonna, you know, click through and I'm gonna do my shopping. That doesn't because of my action, my small action doesn't it's not a big deal. But here's the thing, that small action is a big deal, just like sodium in water. <laughs> so be the sodium. If you wanna support. Um, so click through and do your shopping. Boom, that's a good, good, good way to support podcasts. Also, subscribe if you haven't already on iTunes. Leave a review. Jocko reads iTunes, them all. Stitcher, Google Play. Not everyone has an yeah, iPhone. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I always Somebody asked about some other thing too. SoundCloud? SoundCloud. So I'm not 100% sure of how that works. Okay. Um, I explored SoundCloud before. Um, Unless there's like a separate thing okay. that does push podcast. I'm sure someone podcast. will let us know how to do that. Yeah. If we're missing on SoundCloud, then then yeah, I'm sure that that should should be where we should be as well. Anyway, subscribe. But in the meantime, subscribe. Yeah, to whatever the one that you're doing, uh, Google Play, iTunes, whichever. Subscribe if you haven't already. Leave a review if you feel like it. Um, YouTube. We have a YouTube channel. Subscribe to that one. Put more videos. I know before when you were watching, you were like, hey, th- these are just podcast videos, right? Remember? No, there's some good stuff. You got some good stuff. Man. We do now, and that's the point. That's the point I'm making. <laughs> so we put more videos on there now. Just made one, the, what, yesterday? Yeah. Um, that'll be up soon. Anyway, subscribe to that. If you haven't already, you'll get the so there's alert. A new, there's a new, is that one going to be out by soon? Yeah, a few days. A probably. new Echo Charles video? Yeah, it's more mellow, more cerebral. Oh, Stand by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, then, yeah. Watch it. It's it's cool. It's fun. I guess. Anyway, if you if you have um, the inclination to get a T-shirt as well, Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko Store. URL JockoStore.com. T-shirts, rash guards, patches, Velcro patches as well. Um, the delivery time now from purchase to delivery is quicker now. Know that. Um, so yeah, go on there, jockostore.com. If you like what you see, go ahead and grab one of that. That's a good uh, way to support. There you go. Ah, but psychological warfare. If you don't know what the, you know what psychological warfare is? Yeah, I support it. Oh, there you go. <laughs> see? How can you not, really? You know? I mean, that's a rhetorical question. Yeah, <laughs> you're right about that. So yeah, if you don't know, it's, you know, when you have moments of weakness, if you're, what, getting up early in the morning, it's hard, I'm tired. On a press news or whatever, or you're gonna, you know, you're about to work out, but you'll skip the workout because you're not feeling like it. Moments of weakness. 
you get this album you can download each individual track or um the whole album whatever Jocko will get you through it it's like a spot makes you want to do the work i want to um wake up early anyway itunes psychological warfare search psychological warfare Jocko willink we're actually getting some requests now for other moments of weakness yeah people are like hey this moment of weakness we need a track this moment of weakness need a track so like what I'm logging those down someone was saying when I get tired oh right. in other words it's 10 o'clock at night I'm getting tired I still oh, have work to do yeah I think I'm just gonna blow off the work and just go to sleep because right. that's the easy route yeah maybe we need a track for things like that yeah it's possible and because you know the whole thing biologically when you hit the wall right that's your body really in a way saying like hey you're you're going too far but nowadays in our environment going too far is beneficial because you have this like other goal that your body in a way doesn't really know about so psychological warfare will, will help you get past that put natural your, put your body in check exactly right get your that's mind exactly in control. what it does yeah so anyway Jump on that, man. That's a, that's one that's supporting yourself fully. Anyway, it has been number one since the day it was released. Straight up, that's pretty cool. I, I'm not mad at that at all. You know yeah. why that is? Why? Because useful people are supporting the podcast, and that's yeah, that's pretty cool. So thank you for Getting supporting. After the way less people skipping workouts, way more people waking up early. Obviously, there Check. you go. And those are the ways. Also while you're clicking through Amazon, you can pick up the books that we review on the podcast, right? We just did My Captivity in Vietnam, Through the Valley, My Captivity in Vietnam, and it's a great book, but there's all the other books that we've reviewed on there are on there, on here are on there, so pick those up. Extreme Ownership, there's a little book. It's about combat, and it's about leadership. It's about combat leadership. Well, what else is there? <laughs> what else would you want to read up about Jocka White Tea? A couple things. Jocka White Tea. Some people call it Jocka White Tea. Mm-hmm. Some people call it the 8,000 pound deadlift solution. Yep. Hell yeah. <laughs> Some people call it Kimura tea because apparently you're hitting Kimuras very solid. Yeah, I, yeah, I get good when you get the tea on. Also, I've heard it called problem solver tea because the problems that you have, a little bit of tea, all of a sudden problems are getting solved. <laughs> yep. So you can do that. And, and by the way, it sounds like, oh, this is, I'm just being, you know, exaggerating or whatever. Mm-hmm. Factual. Yeah. 147% factual. <laughs> <laughs> Order tea, Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also pre order Way of the Warrior Kid. And when, People read this book. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like when people tasted the tea. We're going to have a supply issue. I'm telling you. So just order it. If you order it now, that way you get a copy, and that way you won't be wondering why all these kids are out there getting after <laughs> it, and you're going, what's happening? Yeah. No, you'll know. Yeah. You'll know why they're getting after it. Yeah. Way the Warrior Kid. And lastly, also, if you haven't signed up to come to the muster, Number three, muster in New York City, May 4th and 5th. Do it ASAP. I've been seeing a bunch of folks on social media. They're saying that they're going to be there. So look forward to seeing everyone. It's going to be awesome. Obviously, I'm going to be there. Leif is going to be there. 
JP is going to be there. Dave Burke is going to be there. You haven't met Dave Burke yet. He's coming. I hear good things. Oh, yeah. You're going to hear some real good things from Dave Burke. And if none of that really motivates you and gets you in the game, because not hardcore enough and you really need to get nuts, well, guess what? Don't worry. We got you covered because Echo Charles is going to be there. (laughs) Echo Charles is going to be there. Come on down. There's not going to be any hiding behind a curtain. There's no backstage divas at this gig. We're going to be out front with everybody interacting, solving problems, finding solutions, and basically just getting after it. So come on down to the muster. And if you want to give us feedback or comments or continue this little conversation that we're having right here, you can find us on the interwebs. That means basically we're talking about Twitter. Mm-hmm. We're talking about Instagram as well. Sure. And then again, we're also talking about that Facebook. <laughs> so Andy, what are you on those? Oh man. Uh, on the Instagram, it's my name. Andy Stump 212. Very original. Okay. I and like I think it. Twitter That's is good. Andy Stump 77. Also okay. original. And you're but on you- Facebook. The Book of Faces, yes. I'm contractually <laughs> obligated to be on there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. Echo, yes. do you have anything this evening that you want to add to this podcast? Man, that's it. You know, usually I have some expound, like some expanding question, on, but man, you nail it. You're very articulate. Yeah? I use the words I understand. It's two syllables or less. Yeah. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> Solid man, thank thanks for oh, coming, yeah. man. Great to meet you, man. Right on, you too, Andy. Any uh, closing thoughts you want to throw out there? Uh, no. All I can say is thanks for having me on, man. So in twenty uh, twenty four, we'll do it again. <laughs> 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 no, it's great. Great to meet you, Echo. I mean, I I sit back and I love what you guys have going on. So just keep driving ahead, man. It's awesome. People need to hear it. Well, I appreciate the feedback you've been giving me on the podcast, and obviously. Thanks for coming on. Sorry it took so long. Sorry, everyone, it took so long to get you on. And you know what? Bullshit on 2024. We'll, we'll get you back on here, and we'll we'll do this again. And like 2020. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Done. <laughs> and, um, you know, obviously, man, thanks for your service. Yep. And It was my pleasure. And your, and your continued contribution to the teams and to, and to our country. So thank you for everything you've done. And, you know... We started out tonight talking about a debt that cannot be repaid. And that is very true. We cannot. We cannot repay that debt. We owe too much to those that have fallen for our freedom. But you know what we can do? And what we must do is try. Try. Try to live every day with that thought in mind, that thought of the service and of the sacrifice of those that gave their last full measure for us, for our freedom. freedom this nebulous 
concept that can be so hard for some people to grasp but I will tell you it is a real thing and it's a thing that's hard to recognize until it is taken from you and the chains of oppression control your body and your mind and then when your freedom is taken away that is when you realize that freedom is the most important thing the singular thing that gives each of us the divine opportunity that only freedom can give to think and to speak and to do as we wish and to do all of those things beholden to no man and yet while with that freedom we are beholden to no one let us choose let us consciously and deliberately choose to be beholden forever beholden to those men and women who have relinquished their lives so selflessly upon the altar of freedom for them beholden to them let us live with purpose and with passion let us live live lives worthy of their solemn sacrifice let us live lives worthy of the price that has been paid worthy of the freedom we are blessed with and worthy of those heroes we are forever beholden to let us live for them And I think that's all I've got for tonight. And so until next time, this is Andy and Echo and Jocko.